Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me on State of the Art Podcast. I'm your guest host, Dorothy Santos. For those of you who are confused, State of the Art decided to expand their niche beyond art and tech to include a variety of topics which have shaped the state of the art as we know it today. With this in mind, I've been invited to take over the podcast for a month-long discussion exploring queerness. In this episode, I speak with artist Yasheng She. Let me tell you a little bit more about Yasheng. So, full disclosure, they're also a PhD student in film and digital media over at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which is where I discovered his work. He is an audiovisual and textual storyteller, and also fluent in Mandarin, Chinese, English, and Japanese. Yasheng is currently looking at various forms of how queerness is mediated and depicted through a wide array of media, such as games and film. Our conversation includes discussion about anime, manga, and pop culture. Have a listen and enjoy. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for you to be on State of the Art and to talk about queerness and gender expression and identity. That sounds great. I'm very (laughs) excited. (laughs) Well, let's get into it because I know one of the things that I was most fascinated by, well, I'm fascinated by a lot of the work that you're doing, but you look at pop culture, mm-hmm. you look at manga. Did mm-hmm. I say that correctly? That's perfect, yeah. Okay. And you're interested in gaming as well. Yeah. And I'd love to talk about all those things in relationship and through, you know, the arts lens. Mm-hmm. And one of the first questions I had for you was you're working on various types of writing right now. And one of the things that I was reading about was Clamp, which is an all-female manga collective. Could you tell us a little bit more about Clamp? And does it stand for anything? That's a good question. I actually don't know. Um, And I remember, um, so I'm Chinese, born and raised in China. It's a very small town called Panshihua, which is a city that's named after flower. It's not a pretty flower. But it's a, it's, you know, representative of the spirit. Um, I actually don't know what the name is. Sorry, I'm got distracted. But, uh, when I, f- when I first learned English and I'm looking up clamp and I just got like, you know, our equivalent of a Google image. Um, and then they show me like actual clamps. I'm like, okay, that's, that, that doesn't really make, it, make any sense. So I've been thinking about what they mean. So I don't know if there's any, um, meaning behind it but then i also but I, I do know that it is very very culturally influential so for instance i think the you know the the, the genre of magic girls of girls like transforming have a, like abilities um they're the one kind of like starting after the whole wave that was started by like sailor moon so one of the the, the works that they, they done that really really popularized like internationally would be like card capture sakla um, what is that? So basically, I you will love it because it's about a girl has a she has a deck of cards. It's a tarot cards, yes. and each card. Yes, I know, right? And each card has a very intricate design. So the girl, like the protagonist, um, her role is just go to collect those cards, and then also there's always a story that is tied behind. Um, what makes clamps work so unique? Not because it's a female collective, and also in the genre, in the genre is usually called shoujo, which means that. Uh, which means like teenage girl. 
Um, and then that genre of manga is really very catered to women, for women, by women. So it's very like a very feminine space. But what Clamp does that is a little bit different is that they have a lot of queer narrative and queer characters that are involved. And for somebody like myself, when I was growing up, um, this is probably going to be difficult from radio. I have a very feminine voice. And, you know, if you see me in person, it's very, I'm very female presenting, but I'm, you know, I prefer the pronoun he, and I'm like, it's he on my passport. I'm somebody, it's a bad gender study person where I just give my pronoun away, be like, you take it. That's how I own my identity. But we can, we can unpack that later. <laughs> but definitely, I think for me, the queer narrative that's portrayed in Clem becomes a sanctuary for my, for, for, for me. And I think it creates a refuge for people who, um, I think, feeling a little bit outside the the traditional binary. Um, so I think that's why it's, you know, I, I love Clam for that. Well, one of the things I wanted to cover mm -hmm. in relation to your exploration of Clamp and their artwork and their practices was this idea that you, you've mentioned, which is author's queer intent versus the audience's queer projection. And... I always, in my mind, I didn't really think of that as dichotomous. I always, I, I, I grew up thinking one of the Peanuts characters, oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe which, I, oh my gosh, there is a Peanuts character. Are you familiar with Peanuts? Yes. Yes. And I always just assumed when I was a little girl that the, one of the characters was queer. Oh. I just assumed that, and I, I don't think that necessarily was the author's intent, or maybe so, I don't know. And I don't even know why Peanuts is, is, is coming up, but I, I, I think I'm bringing up something because intrinsically I knew that in my heart I felt that this was a queer character, and perhaps that was my own projection. But that's also age, that's also maturity, that's also learning about queerness and coming into it on your own terms. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about Clamp's work through that perspective of their intent or author's intent versus what and how an audience member might be projecting onto their work. Basically, the the most simplest way to to ask this too, or it's another another kind of permutation of this question is, does it always have to rely on the audience's projection for it to be queer? Yeah, wow, that is, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think that's what the, one of the main issues I ran into kind of in terms of doing work in the queer, in the queer space. Um, I'm actually presenting um, a work similar, you know, like about Clamp at Macademia, which is a journal that does a lot of anime studies you know we're all we're there because we love anime right we love manga and for I, those of for those in listeners that need kind of a 101 and i'm asking you to do this in like 30 seconds oh my god but <laughs> could you give a little summation could you could you provide kind of uh for those not familiar with anime maybe a sense of what it is sure um i think anime well it's just it's a japanese way to have a very fun way of abbreviating everything so anime is animation 
so which it's they're just cartoons. Um, manga is the Japanese way of saying comic books. So these are kind of like you know, but then I think you know, on a larger culture scale, they become a genre, which is can be culturally problematic. But <laughs> we're but that's for another another topic. I think e. But then these all these texts are Japanese, right? You know, because the way it's pronounced, the way that is that the the issues that's that's being raised in these texts, they're inherently Japanese. So, um, for instance, they when you're looking at a manga from a kind of critical point of view, not only it's it's a it's a your understanding from like a visual art point of view, um, but also your understanding from a cultural study point of view. Like you have to contextualize it. In a way that makes sense to you. So, well, there are different outlets academically.、Uh, for instance, Macademia that I just mentioned earlier is one of those outlets who take that takes those、um, Japanese texts like animation and manga and turn them into academic topic. And so, let's circle back around to the question、okay. that I asked about authors' intent versus audiences' projection, or more specifically, authors' queer intent in relation to. Audiences, queer projection, and the question that I asked of: Is it is are those intertwined? Are they separate? Like how? What have you seen, especially through Clamp? Maybe、mm-hmm. a specific example of, you know, work that they've done that actually shows this dichotomy. Maybe. Yeah,、um, that's a very good question. I think because Clamp had a huge body of work, and then each queer narrative is treated differently.、Um, I definitely think that there are different ways to look at the queer queer intent and queer read. But I think the success of a、uh, Clamp as a collective is definitely largely thanks to a queer read. So, because.、Um, Characters latch onto you know readers latch onto certain characters and realize that wow that's their their articulating experience I don't have the language to articulate for myself and I really want that、um, but I think on Clamp's part and being critical to to the authors I love sometimes they play it very ambiguously. So sometimes you they, you will see that well that you are like oh is that a queer character or not? There is a level of ambiguity in their text that. I think、um, I think that the queer balance is definitely more on the queer read part rather than the intent.、Um, and then, oh no 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 keep going I I I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I wanted to talk about you also raised the issue you've raised the issue in in past writing、mm-hmm. about and and I know you're thinking about this about Christianity so in the U S Christianity is seen as Queerness as seen as immoral versus in Asian Confucianism,、mm-hmm. it's seen as it's it's you've you've said this that it's characterized as more of an affront or a rejection of this you know、uh, filial piety. So、yep. so even queerness is being queered. So it's kind of like this multi layered thing that's happening, and I think that's one of the reasons why you've mentioned Clamp as. You know,、uh, an, an an interesting collective to look at because they're looking at. If you could talk a little bit about something that they've done re- in relation to their queer characters, and you know, queerness related to family and queerness related to this idea of not bearing children. Yeah,、um, that's definitely a sore topic. I think、um, it's very prevalent.、Um, I'm I'm familiar. I, I cannot say that. You know, I understand the the rhetoric in the Western world, like you know, especially in term in relation to Christianity. Although 
you know, per, like through talking to my friends, their lived experience, I can understand the expectations of that. There's a religious guilt that comes with, you know, queerness. Whereas in uh, East Asia, I'm going to kind of narrow the scope a little bit. Um, a lot of them are from Philip Hyley, the, the failure the failure to create a family of your own or failure to sustain the, the family bloodline, right? Um, and then that guilt is about the, the ability, to, uh, inability to deliver. Um, and I think, to me, um, clamp becomes very interesting in, in this in this way because when I was younger, I I identify with the queer character. So, for instance, there are different ways ways to portray queerness. In some of the work, the queer character they're angels, they're non human, so they have they are. You know, they don't have the very pronounced male or female characteristics. So you're just kind of like they're queer because they don't have a gender. And the conversation comes up like we're like, oh, how are we going to have children? Are we going to be happy without children? Um, and then the other in other cases where this is a bit, bit of a stretch from queerness, but they also look at non-human subjects such as like uh, androids. So uh, androids fall in love with a human. And they have the same issue is that you're not going to have a baby. How are you going to deal with that? Um, and then there's also the case where two queer, uh, like, you know, two um, male and two female characters when they're in love, um, even though they're not um, talking about in a very pronounced way, the the thing that's lingering is that, well, what's going to happen with family? So what clamp is, is they're very smartly or we're kind of sneakily doing here is that they're basically thinking about the kind of like the the bearing children um but then this is a rhetoric mostly adapt um being used for feminism fem feminism in Japan so they were thinking that well how do we imagine a pure love that it that is without the anxiety of childbearing oh wow yeah that's a lot it's a lot that's a lot and i think that's one of the that's the beauty of talking to you about and just also being in conversation with you constantly about games and how games and comics and graphic novels and anime anime and manga can and are these genres all on their own. I can see that. I could also see, well, here, let me ask you a question. Why do you think or what do you think led to the popularization of anime and manga in the U.S.? I have a lot of answers to that. Well, just make it really short. It's different. It's different. And I think uh, whether we like it or not, it definitely plays on the the imagination of, um, you know, kind of like Edward Said Orientalism. There is there's that. Um, but then also the erasure, like how successful erasure of like certain cultural property that is in Japanese text. Sorry, to make them universal. In a way that, um, for instance, um, I think one of the some some of the very popular properties include like Cowboy Bebop. It's a culture product that's inherently Japanese, but they did so well to erase all the Japanese odor. I'm doing odor with air quotes. I mean, that's fine. You said air <laughs> quotes, so the the audience knows. Yeah, but leaving the fragrance of existential ennui. So you're thinking about your existential crises, but what's underneath that layer is the kind of like a post-colonial, post-imperial reflexivity about their own, how to situate themselves in the world. Mm, and I love that you're also making this reflection multi-sensorial. <laughs> no, because I think so many people give primacy to vision, and I, I get that, that that's the reason why a lot of the things that we look at that hence the discipline of visual and critical studies and visual arts. 
but I think the fact that even the language of what of how you're using that, because sometimes there's there are certain types of genres that that actually leave a type of stench or residue, mm-hmm. and so it's interesting to to think about that. So wait, what did you call this subgenre? Is it a subgenre cowboy? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a the show. Um, it's a oh, it's a show. I mean, let me restart that. It's a show called Cowboy Bebop. Um, it's very popular in the states and i think the the creator also made uh samurai champu which is also a very popular show in the states um i think they're successful because they cater to the international audience um because they're very successful at um considering what will be universal how to tell a story that is universal and how to hide their own narrative and their contemplation in that universal narrative mm-hmm. um Oh my gosh, this is, I can't believe, I have so many more things to talk to you about because now you just got me thinking about this whole new, all these ideas. Um, But I want to fit in as much as possible. So let me ask you something about the Japanese idol industry. Yeah. Because this is another area that you've been writing about and thinking about. And I didn't know this actually until I read your work. So, you know, there was this Japanese uh, idol or this Japanese celebrity or mm-hmm. um, a pop idol that shaved her head mm-hmm. for, be, as an apology to the public. Yeah. And around the same time, you contextualize this in your writing about, you know, how Justin Bieber fans were pleading with him to you know, uh, stop smoking, you know, uh, marijuana or weed, <laughs> as a, you know, whatever the young kids are saying. But I wanted to ask you about this because you mentioned something very specific in your writing about how idols are treated as consumer products for healing in the age of exhaustion. You wrote that. And I wanted to ask you because I think that that's a really great summary of what oftentimes pop culture can be. You know, there's some good pop. I'm not going to lie, you know, Uh, but what could you could you could you unpack that for the listener a little bit? You know, when when you talk about this or even if you want to contextualize a little bit about and and share a little bit more about this, this particular pop idol that 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 did this as an apology. And could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. And I think it's very much layered um, in order to kind of explain that. I want to break it down a little bit. So there's an author who write about age of exhaustion. So and then talk about how, you know, the society of burnout. Um, it's a very beautifully articulated work talking about, you know, neoliberalism and then how we are no longer subjugated to the system. However, we're, we're subjugated to ourselves. We are no longer subjects. We are projects that we constantly need to, to work, which is very real. So that's why we have the words like entrepreneurship. It's on you. If you're unhappy, it's probably your fault. If you fail, that's also capitalism. It's very capitalism. It's also on you. But then, you know, in the age of a neoliberal market, you know, we are on our own in a way. So there is a level of isolation that is in there. Um, so he kind of asked the question, be like, well, so how do we solve the problem when we are like encounter something difficult? And how do we um, get from, you know, being so, you know, re- heal? How do we heal from the state of being exhausted? 
The way he looks at it is through consumption. There's always a market for something, and in this case, pop idols. So what do we consume about pop idols in the Japanese context or even in American context?、Um, well, their, their image. We consume their in- image, and then the image is often associated with purity. It's about a state that is without trauma, a state that is about all the energy in the whole world, the state about you know pure love, pure energy, something just very wholesome. If you consume that, the idea is that you become that. So once you see an image that's about pureness and everything, once you consume it, you know in this case you, you know, getting visual pleasure all of it, you feel like I'm being healed. But in the in the book, the author would argue that well, that's not really the case. You it just it it creates a very temporary solution to a much bigger problem that needs to be addressed, and that's why we burn out because eventually. You know it's difficult, but then there's another way, kind of like consume this image, which is through preservation. So in a Japanese context, the idol are different than celebrities. They're can they're trainees. So you help them, your fans. You feel the build your fan. The idol success is defined by、um, their fan base. So the fan basically make them. In a way that is kind of terrifying. The similar way can be said about American industry in a very slightly different way, but. Because you're projecting yourself onto the idol, they become project. So you are constantly working on them. So if they did something that is contradictory, in this case, if they're about purity, they should be having sex in the Japanese context, which is crazy. Then they need to they need to make it right. So in this case, for some reason, she decided that shaving her head, or I mean, there's all external pressure. Shaving her head, returning to the state of purity—that's the way to do it. It's fascinating because even, I mean, in the U.S., the act of shaving one's head—if you are read as feminine—and、mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it's actually your hair. A lot of people put a lot on hair being very a, a very gendered thing, and so it's strange that a queer act would be the thing that. Purifies or makes pure、uh, this pop star's image, which I think is super. That's so fraught. <laughs> yeah, no, that is so true. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I think in East Asia, queerness is defined very differently. And I'm also having issues here because、um, I was talking to a professor the other day about you know binary. The issue is that once you escape the binary, you collapse into into the queer space. So what does that mean? Because we definitely have different identities, but we are all queer. What does that even mean to being queer? And in the states, about in like in the, in the Japanese context, is that a queer act of like removing something that is you know like some of the signifiers to return to a state、um, becomes like you know like is taken very differently. So, like, what does that mean? Is the so it, it feels like well, in that case, in the, in the shaving your head to just say that oh, I'm so sorry, I'm removing all the sexual signifiers I have, so I'm returning to a state of purity. What does that say about about queerness? Is that like queerness cannot be associated with sexuality? Exactly. I、oh. mean, that's a really great question, and I oftentimes think that that's the conundrum because I remember when. I first learned about this through your writing,、mm-hmm. and I—that was instantaneously the thing that I thought about was, oh, 
a queer act is a thing that's seen as that will bring someone back to some kind of pure state. It also reminded me of, and it was also ableist too. And the reason why I say that is because I couldn't help but think of Britney Spears when Britney Spears shaved her head. And everyone thought that she wasn't well. And not only was it, it wasn't even seen as a queer act. It was seen more in terms of of, of mental of mental state or health or well-being in that sense. And so I always think about it in terms of how people are framing it also, uh, you know, they're kind of also collapsing those things as well. Because, you know, even within my own family, queerness oftentimes I think is, is and I don't, I don't, I don't think my family is going to listen to this so I can say this and feel comfort in saying this, but it's either a pathology or it's somehow something that's entertaining, like, oh, that's just your gay uncle. And it's just, no, actually, you know, that, that people start to perform because it is so it's they are overtly queer or gay or lesbian or trans. And then that person is then expected to perform that identity. And it's it's actually a lot more fluid than what people think. So that was one of the things that I thought about when I read this out of your writing was you know that there there's so many ways to to think about this but i also really enjoyed the fact that it was in relationship to perfect blue which i have yet to see it's so good and i remember you've show, you, you know you 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 showed excerpts before of the mm-hmm. film and it looks amazing could you talk a little bit about without spoilers okay could you talk a little bit about perfect blue yeah um it's I'm getting emotional thinking about Perfect Blue because um, Kong Satoshi, uh, which means Satoshi Kong, his first name is Satoshi, he passed away. Um, mm. And then he's somebody who like does psychoanalysis so beautifully. Um, I think Perfect Blue is one of the work that I feel very emotionally attached to. Um, and I think that the, one of the ways is that because... Um, I'm somebody who used academic pursuit as therapy. So I kind of recontextualize. Oh, you too? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's very real. Like, you know, it's like free therapy that I have to do a lot of work on my own. Oh, totally. But you get to write papers and present at conferences. I know. It's like introspection, make it work. Um, No, I definitely think that way. And I think um, I find the genre very cathartic at at an early age, which becomes disturbing. It's like... Well, it's about murder as catharsis. Like, what does it say about me? Um, but then I realized that, well, the way that the, 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 oh my God, did I just spoil it? Um, no, that's okay. Okay. That's um, totally fine. I'm sorry. People will, st- I still want to watch it. Uh-huh. People will watch it regardless, I'm sure. <laughs> but it, it does, it talks about double consciousness. It talks about what you should perform and how you compartmentalize that the, the gaze is being imposed upon you. So let's re, let's, let's just like go back a little bit. How are you defining double consciousness? And also, are you relating it to, because there's different forms of double consciousness yes. in, in culture. And, you know, I mean, obviously, currently in the US, you know, with, uh, Jordan Peele's work, Us, and this notion of double consciousness and W.E. Du Bois's work. I'm very curious in what framing are you using double consciousness? And also, there must be some, you know, uh, queerness and what are, what is what is kind of the, the doubling that's happening for you? 
Yeah, that's that's very good question. I think double consciousness is also a term that's being used so much that it's kind of starting to lose its meaning. Um, I, and I think the way I was looking at it is definitely well, you know, femininity in the in that context. Well, in this case, with Japanese context, um, femininity is subjugated. You know, is um, something that you have to constantly negotiate. There is a lot of level of performance that is involved. So double consciousness happens when you know. That's the act you need to perform. At the same time, you are very angry about what's happening. So that's the, the the idea that how to be angry with a smile on your face. It sounds very psychopathic, but that's the gist of the film. <laughs> that's how. But the film, in and of itself, in relationship to what we're talking about, in relation, uh, kind of connected to, tethered, if you will, since we're talking about double consciousness, but tethered to Japanese idol culture. Yeah, that there's this kind of. Do you think that that's? Do you think that that psychosis is kind of a byproduct of this? Of this treating the idol as a consumer, almost product, as you mentioned earlier, that they become a product instead of a person. So then it becomes almost not a neurotic, not a neuroticism, but almost like a, like I said, like a psychosis. I couldn't say it better myself. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, and I think that's also something is difficult because um, it, it's a you know, and in this case is that well, how do we? Um, consume something ethically, and in this case, well, like you know how they are—they are being flattened into images, into projects that need to be constantly perfected. Um, but it, at the same time, you know, they're sacrificing a lot, and then but then we are creating a culture that relies on these, you know, outlets, so like we can feel healed, feel whole. But we're—it's always at the cost of someone else. Oh, gosh. I mean, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about isn't exactly cheery, mm-hmm. but I feel like we, we we're making this sound fun. It's very <laughs> fun and then cheery. I think. Well, no, the next thing I wanted to talk about was this idea because you also write about games and you also make games. You, I mean, you're you're and de- I try <laughs> you, and you're a designer. You're an artist. You're all of these wonderful, amazing things. And but you you in your writing, you also talk about or in uh, Japanese games. You you mentioned this idea of muku seki muku seki muku seki, which is nationlessness. Yes. So I wanted to relate that back to a querying of space, or maybe even if we wanted to get you know all, you know what I, I'm pretty sure I'm a huge fan of Sarah Ahmed and mm-hmm. this idea of stranging space because it's it's querying it too, but. How would you say that, say, that video games that you've looked at, even if we go back and circle back around to Clamp mm-hmm. and how different anime and manga actually explore these ideas of nationlessness, you know, but related to games specifically, because I think one of the, the games I learned about through you was Automata. Mm-hmm. And I ended up watching the trailer. I do want to play the game. So could you talk a little bit about that in relationship to the concept of nationlessness or this concept of muko kaseki? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm very, that's something I feel like it's the the essence of something I wanted to do. Um, It's all about masquerading. You know, wearing a mask, what does it mean? Like what is underneath the mask? What is underneath the masquerade? And I think that's, you know, relating earlier about the success of anime or manga in this country, you know, in this country as in America, is that 
Well, they are very good at masquerade their, you know, their ideology into something very universal. So it translates so beautifully into into English. So you can take it, be like, oh, I can see myself in that character. You know, I can totally ignore some of the cultural signifiers. And then if you look closer, those signifiers are actually being removed already. So in this case, well, Near Automata, it's um, I think it's the second installment of the Near series, but it is the fifth installment of the Yoko Taro, who's the director. Uh, of uh, uh, Dragon Age, uh, Dra one more time. Yoko Taro, he is the the director of uh, Dragon Guard, um, and then um, near Auto the near series, the game, the narrative on its own of the throughout the series. If you look closer, it's about uh, Japanese post-colonial reflexivity and post-imperial uh, reflexivity. But in near Automata, that level is very very hidden. Because this game is masquerade as something about, you know, existential ennui or existential crises. It's mm -hmm. about who are you? Why are you here? You know, there is an endless spiral of life and death. And how do you get out of it? Um, but in this case, if you like look closer, um, what nationlessness it does is that it's, you know, it re literally removes the nation out of the equation. It takes out what makes the theory very Japanese like pungent and then take that part out and just leave the fragrance of the existential crisis that, that we all wanted to know the answer for. And I think, you know, even, but then that also translates into queerness, right? Because who knows better about masquerade than, than queer? Um, I hear that. Yes, very much so. Agreed. <laughs> um, so it is about that. It is about how to move through the world, knowing exactly like what kind of mask you're wearing in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it sounds kind of not so uplifting in a way, but it also teaches you how to, basically how to move through the world. It teaches you different ways, different ways to, to come, come into terms with your own narrative, coming to terms with your own um, a discourse by basically working through metaphors. Yeah, and I would love to learn, uh, hear more about you, how, how you see that you know, in conversation with uh, Sarah Ahmed. Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm also thinking of because I think I love her writing because in a lot of ways, you know, she talks about the willful subject. Mm -hmm. So someone who is resistant. So willful, not meaning you're submitting willful, meaning you're resisting. And I think when you come out as queer or you identify as queer, there is an instantaneous, you know, splitting from not just family, not just from your own kind of conceptions of maybe how you grew up and what you understand as like normativity or normal. But I think for me, I really attached myself to to those, you know, ideas and identities that Sarah Ahmed actually talks about, such as the willful subject, such as being the killjoy, <laughs> that those things are okay, that those identities in and of themselves are a part of the queering process, at least for me. So I, I think that's kind of the, one of the things that I read or how I read into her writing recently. But I can't believe how quickly this has gone because we're almost at time. And I knew this would happen. <laughs> and I'm lucky enough to expand the conversation. But there's this tradition at State of the Art that's called uh, rapid fire questioning. So don't think. Just I, I can't stop you from doing it because you're always thinking. <laughs> But I'm going to ask you very simple questions, and then you can just answer them with the whatever first thing comes to mind. I'm excited. What's your favorite pattern? Squares. 
Oh, square. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, what is the favorite? What is your favorite book that you're reading at the moment? Because I know you're reading tons of books. Um, I'm reading Ray Chow's book um, that, that I really, really like. Um, Age of War Targeting. Nice. Age of War Target. I'll have to I'll have to look that up. It's it's good. Yeah. Favorite film at the moment. Oh my god. Um Oh my god, I don't have any. Um uh, favorite film at the moment. I just watched um let me think about it, sorry. No worries. <laughs> No, oh, I I just watched um, the Charlie Theron film, uh, Long Shot. I think it was cute. Oh, it- <laughs> okay. So, and then let me ask you this: What is your favorite scent? A tea tree. Oh, that's a good scent. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Well, I can't believe we didn't get a chance to talk about so many other things but if people want to learn more about you and your work they can visit your site which is um yashen she so that's y-a-s-h-e-n-g-s-h-e.com and do you have anything that you want people the listeners to pay attention to what 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 closing remarks do you have anything you want to share in particular that's a good question i think stay curious and stay queer yes Yes. oh my gosh yes oh (laughs) thank you so much no thank you so much for having me thank you for joining us on state of the art podcast you can learn more about yasheng shay at yashengshay.com be sure to tune in next week as we speak with artist brina nunez